Now, smart money, from my perspective, is how a brand is looking at how do I get product in front of the customer wherever he or she is. And wholesale becomes a much more important piece. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 77, and today's guest is Ken Pilot. The best way to describe Ken is as a connector. He's had a long run in retail on the brand side, and his second act has brought him to being an advisor, an investor, and a go-to person for all things related to retail technology. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ken Pilot. Ken is a seasoned retail executive with operating experience consisting of C-level roles at Gap Inc., J. Crew, Ralph Lauren, American Eagle, and ABC Carpet and Home. He was the co-founder and CEO of Robot Galaxy and has an advisory practice that focuses on advancing direct-to-consumer methodology through technology and use of space. Over the past seven years, Ken has invested in and served as operating partner of various technology companies with a primary focus on retail stores, e-commerce, and retail operations. As part of his relationships with founders, he's provided key introductions to retail industry leaders, strategically positioning each platform relative to the needs of the brand. Ken, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here and good to see you. It's been a yeah. while. Yes, you it has. Good. good. Yeah, look, same here. Good. Thank you very much. Uh, it's good to be seen. Um, so, you know, before we get into your background, which is always part of uh, of our show here, you're kind of a connector, um, which I have always found interesting, you know, about you. And I, I I was going to ask this later in the in the show, but you know, when people ask you to describe what you do today and what you are, it must take you quite a while to do that. And that's without, you know, you just being boastful because you're involved in a lot of different things. So let's set the stage. What are you, Ken Pilot? It's a good question. Uh, that question usually starts with my family, uh, my wife in particular. My kids have kind of given up on describing what dad does. I'm probably like the CEO. That's a, a new category, CEO. I, I see a, a lot of opportunities out there, and I try to really focus them on an area that I'm passionate about, that you're passionate about, which is retail. So I, I look at what I'm doing today really sits in three buckets. I have an advisory group, which consists of one other person, Paige Perkins, who works with me out of Atlanta, a true talent. And we work with generally one brand at a time and advise them on a variety of things, anything from how to scale their online business to growing their stores, what their structure of the company should look like to merchandising. So there's an advisory piece. The other side of the business is a venture piece where I've been investing in companies or, or advising, but mostly investing in different tech platforms that support the retail ecosystem. 
So platforms that are focused with online or stores, operations, even expense control. And then recently decided to somewhat bring the two pieces together and launch a podcast, the retail pilot, which seemed a sort of a, a natural extension of what I was doing. And I needed something else to do because clearly the, the former wasn't keeping me as busy as I would like. So decided to go back to the connector piece that you mentioned, connect with many that I know out there at the CEO level, either former or current, and really talk to them about their business, how they're running their business, the challenges of their business, and also how they're leveraging technology today to take the business forward. And I think you, uh, more so than many, appreciate what's happening on the tech side. I mean, you've seen many challenges as you've grown big e-commerce platforms and led digital teams in your, your past life. But you and I both know that if you're not leaning forward into technology, you're going to fall back quickly. I think that's kind of a summary of what I do. It's not uh, a straightforward answer because it involves different parts, but it does all focus on retail. And that's what I'm passionate about. Cool. And we'll come back to, uh, you know, kind of the things that you're doing today with retail and, and tech. But, you know, one of the things we do on the show all the time is we get the first story from people. You, you talk about kids. Um, oftentimes, I find in the guests that I speak with, something in their early life, in their growing up, kind of was a foreshadow for what they would do. So, you know, you've been involved in retail and technology. Anything growing up, where did you grow up? And anything that while you were, you know, becoming Ken Pilot that might have told us, you know, what you would do in your career? I was born in Manhattan. I, I failed uh, all the private school exams. The Rorschach test threw me for a loop. When I was asked what that looks like at the age of, I don't know, four or five, I looked at this ink splatter and I said, it looks like shit. <laughs> they immediately turned to my mother. They thanked her very much and sent me on my way, uh, which got us up to Westchester County. So I grew up in Westchester County, only child, scrappy. You know, I had, you had to kind of fight for everything out there, friends, buddies, companions, because you're living at home, you're working alone, and then you go out in the world and you got to meet. And you didn't have a big brother to beat up your bullies. You didn't have a sister to connect you with girlfriends. Everything had to kind of come from yourself. So I think in part, being an only child was uh, led me to be an entrepreneur. And I was always doing one-off projects. I mean, crazy stuff. You know, I, I skipped over delivering newspapers, but I shoveled driveways, uh, got very into photography in high school, actually had a job developing black and white photography at a local camera store. I mean, it was all done by hand. It was like me at the age of 16 or 17, ingesting fumes in the back room, putting out black and white prints. Um, I was also a tennis player growing up. I strung tennis rackets. Uh, I did tennis lessons. Actually, when I got out of college, I began, uh, I, I ran a tennis camp in the Hamptons. Uh, that was fun when you were 18, 19 years old, part of Future Stars. Uh, that was a, a great opportunity. And, you know, really from then on, just got into um doing different projects until I actually took a full-time job entering the Macy's training program, which was my first quote unquote real job. 
I think what's interesting about, you know, your career and your life is you've kind of had two careers. And if you will humor me, the first career was, you know, working in the brands that I mentioned, you know, earlier. So if we kind of go back, you know, to the late 80s, early 90s, you, know, you, you mentioned the Macy's program, but you had a lot of formidable years at the Gap. So tell us a little bit about your experience there. You were president of Gap Global. Yeah, I, I think probably the biggest break I had at the Gap was at the time, I thought the worst thing that had ever happened to me. Uh, I was a GMM of one of the divisions for the Gap, and they asked me to start the outlet business, which we really didn't have. And I didn't want to start the outlet business. That's like I became, literally became known as the undertaker of the Gap. So I, I move into this job and, you know, Don Fisher had asked me to take it on. So I, I had to say yes. Mickey was supportive of taking it on and he didn't really want to know about it, but he said, take it on anyway. So here I am sitting alone looking at this opportunity to bring Gap into the outlet space. We had a few stores at the time that were kind of quasi outlet stores, but there was no outlet strategy. These stores that were just underperforming and taking huge markdowns and liquidating goods. So I was basically given this entrepreneurial opportunity as an intrapreneur, uh, an entrepreneur operating inside of a company to build a business. And uh, the biggest challenge was trying to hire people internally. They would see my number light up on their phone and just hang up. They, you know, who wanted to work for Ken, the outlet guy? Anyway, we built a team and in 36 months opened up 100 stores and became the not only the fastest growing division and we were competing against old navy but we were the most profitable part of the company um, from a return on um, asset point of view um, certainly return on inventory our, our margins were off the chart i mean going back mark we were we had four wall profit in, in the high 30s low 40s you know back then you really weren't paying much for real estate maybe your rents were running at two percent uh, margins were great we were producing our own product and that was that was fun we were taking everyone's best sellers from the year prior and remaking them with the factory at a better price and if and when merchants had a problem moving merchandise they had to come to us and we basically had a flat rate that was offered to everyone, so we didn't negotiate it. Every merchant hated that rate because it was an onerous, uh, but we took the goods and uh, built a $500 million business. And from there, uh, went on to uh, run Gap International, and from Gap International, then Gap Brand Global. You talked about intrapreneur, and that's such an interesting opportunity. And, and I guess, you know, when you got to American Eagle and you started a brand there, you know, that that's a fun experience to have this, um, what, what I envision, you know, this um, large, deep pocket organization that allows you to do some things, um, you know, kind of scut work uh, to get something going. Yeah, it's uh, it's much different than a true startup. Um, certainly, as startups are looked at today, and the focus now being much more on being profitable, how are you spending your money, versus you're a startup, it doesn't matter if you make money, spend everything you've raised. But working within a corporation, you do have a lot of leverage. Uh, cash is uh, cash is available. Um, systems are available, people are available, and so many other opportunities that you could never bring to a very small company if you were on your own. 
How did you deal, you know, at the gap, you know, if you kind of think about uh, when the web became prominent, you know, there was so much conversation in businesses, you know, about the web cannibalizing, you know, let's say a catalog business that might have existed or even the retail store business. I would imagine that developing an outlet chain in essentially what was a full price business, you know, gap brand, there must have been some conversation about what kind of cannibalization will exist or will happen. How did you deal with that? Um, I would focus on what Old Navy was doing to everyone else just to get their focus away from me because it was interesting, Mark, really at the time, you know, think about it. If you were in Gap and maybe this was a critical point, but if you were in Gap, you had two things coming at you. And the first and foremost was Old Navy. You know, Old Navy, if you recall, really started more um, on the on the strip center side of the business and then quickly started to fill into the malls. So at, at Gap, just with the, with the Gap mindset on, it was uh, Old Navy was the bigger challenge and seen as the bigger competitor. Outlet was the least of the was the least of everyone's worries at the time. And then, you know, as I mentioned, so you go to American Eagle, uh, talk about the brand that you uh, created there. And what was the charge? Why that brand within American Eagle? What were they trying to accomplish? Well, I think what inspired at the time, it was um, Roger and uh, Jim O'Donnell. Uh, they were really looking to create something in the active space, something that was at a higher price point, um, something that included brands like whether it was a stone island or the feeling of a montclair um italian inspired streetwear that you could wear really it was it was the the early part of athleisure they had brought in a design couple from abercrombie and fitch who were the first two designers that mike jeffries had hired to lead the charge on the design side so the goal was to build this active inspired brand, the majority of the product coming from the label we were developing, which be, was which became known as Martinosa, and then maybe 20 to 30% of the product to be third party product, very consistent with what J. Crew was doing at the time, buying a fair amount of third party product to really accent or rather augment what we were doing. So looking for footwear, potentially watches or outerwear or key items that were just additional pieces that they could add to Martinosa. So, you know, up until then, you had spent most of your career, I think, uh, on the apparel side. Uh, and now you jump uh, to ABC Carpet and Home, different vertical. Um, what was that uh, like, you know, trying to learn a new business? Well, that one that one was a little more complicated uh, in as much as it involved family. Uh, ABC Carpet and Home was founded by my uncle. Ah, I didn't know that. Okay, cool. Subsequent to that, my cousin Paulette and cousin-in-law Evan came in and started the home business. So my uncle founded Carpet, Paulette and Evan founded Home. Paulette and Evan ended up separating and Paulette was running the business and asked me to come in and partner with her. And I thought at the time, the brand was so much bigger than the business that there'd be a real opportunity to find outside investment and take the, the business to the level of the brand. Perhaps if I listened to my uncle, I, I may have made a different move. My uncle said to me, and I think he was right, there's no greater oxymoron than a good family business. 
but I didn't listen to my uncle and I felt I'll, I'll prove him wrong. We can create a good family business. Unfortunately, my cousin and I saw things very differently. And although we worked together for five years, um, you know, we were rather opposite, uh, both in terms of our point of view around product and our point of view on people. And ultimately, we, we went our separate ways. ABC went through uh, probably about three years ago, really during COVID, went through bankruptcy. They got crushed by the fact that so much of their business was coming out of one store um, versus online. And with that store being closed for a good portion of COVID, it just took the wind out of their sails. So um, they've since emerged from bankruptcy, different ownership and on a different trajectory. But what I would say about the home business, I'm much more passionate about home than I am about apparel for the main reason that buying something for your home a, is, is a much bigger decision and something that you tend to live with a lot longer. You don't like your shirt. You don't like your shoes. You don't like the belt. You don't like the coat. You got other shirts, belts, coats, shoes to wear. But if you don't like that sofa or you don't like that dining table or the chair you just bought, you're kind of living with that for a while. So a more important decision. And I think it's something that really reflects who you are because everyone that comes to your home, uh, whether you're renting or an owner is going to see, uh, this is how Mark sees himself. This is what he likes, you know, from the chairs to the artwork, to the rugs, to the patterns you pick. It's just a much more important decision when it comes to purchasing home products. So I really like that. The devil's in the details. You probably have heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that could make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who's helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. We uh, we're recording uh, this show um, in mid-May of 2023. Uh, you're knee-deep in the retail space. What's the climate like right now? You know, the climate now is, is rather challenging unless you're running a luxury business, which I just think that those guys are Teflon. I mean, you can look at the LVMHs of the world and, oh, my God, you start to look at their monthly numbers up 20, up 23 percent, up 20, up 24 percent. But when you get into many companies out there that we know today that make up the middle, which is vast, the vast majority of retail brands right now are struggling. Um, and I think they're coming off of what was a bit of a bounce from COVID coming out of COVID. We're now up against that. So the climate has been very difficult. And what I'm hearing and the challenge that I face now on the advisory slash investment side is that many tech platforms are having to deal with that. And what they're hearing, or at least I'm hearing, is the following. If it wasn't part of, if your platform or a tech platform wasn't part of our budget, we're not looking at it. If it is part of the budget and we haven't started spending on it yet, we're pushing it out. So the investment climate right now is very challenging. And you're really looking to find which brands are doing well that can afford to keep things moving, making important investments around technology that I, I think are more 
I would say are, are tech light in that there isn't a great deal of integration that needs to take place or is not business disruptive like an ERP or dropping in a new OMS or even a point of sale solution, which are much bigger decisions. But what technology can we look at out there that can potentially move us forward without taking a lot of time and expense? So I guess in summary, tough environment. Um, I think I don't know if we're in a recession. I, I think if we are, it's it's a, it's going to be a mild one. And I think the back half of the year is going to get better. Well, let's hope so. That would be uh, uh, certainly for my business. That would be uh, would be a good thing. Um, I wanted to talk about you know something that uh, I saw in the news. You actually uh, talked about it on on LinkedIn in this this new relationship uh, with Nike and Dicks, and you know how they are levering you know the concept of omni-channel. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think, you know, Omni has gone a long way. You know, you go back to hearing so much around D2C or digitally native brands and what they were doing. And the big push was all around growing online, growing online. And then from online, it really became stores and online. Um, now, smart money, from my perspective, is how a brand is looking at how do I get product in front of the customer wherever he or she is and wholesale becomes a much more important piece. I mean, wholesale has been around forever. There's nothing new to it. But generally, you had brands that either focused on a wholesale tra uh, channel or were very focused on a retail channel. Not many successful ones were doing both. And I think today, certainly when you look at what margins are like when you're running an online business, in many cases, the margins operating a wholesale business are, are better. And I, I think that brands are seeing that you, know, you take a look at a, a brand like Faraday. Those guys have been doing wholesale for quite some time and they have their own stores and they have online. So I think looking for the opportunity for smart distribution, which can't be just relegated to operating it yourself, but allowing others and being very careful who those others are because you are giving them your brand keys and the way they represent you is important. I don't think you need to do wholesale with everyone. It's a select few that could be a really important partner. And I've seen, as I'm sure you have, Nordstrom has been a very good partner to many brands who are very focused on being a direct to consumer with only their own stores and e-commerce. And Nordstrom's has done a good job, I think, presenting the product fairly well. But I, I also like it when brands can move inside of a large company and take space, even if it's lease operation space. Take a look at um, a, a brand like Land's End and what they did with Kohl's, opening up small 800 square foot, 1,000 square foot stores within their stores. And we're seeing it, you know, whether it's in the beauty space, um, other brands who are taking space, a small brand like Reese has taken a number of locations inside of Bloomingdale's. I think it's a really smart way for a brand to expand because it will better define them in a department store. And it's a hell of a lot less from a CapEx point of view than opening up your own store. And it can be done far more quickly. You can open up in a department store, you know, in days versus you know, if you're lucky, you can get a deal done from the time you sign a deal to open a store and maybe you can cut it down to six months 
you know, it takes, it takes a minimum of eight weeks, nine weeks to build out a store physically, forgetting the two, $300 a square foot that you're spending to open a store if you're good. So I like the idea of brands looking for the right strategic partners where they could potentially do a pop in, if you will, than doing their own real estate as a, as a standalone strategy. Come back to the uh, Nike uh, Dix conversation. So, what relationship have they now forged uh, that's a little bit different than what they've historically done together? Yeah, I think you know what I'm. What I understood from that article and what I did hear when I was talking to the Dix guys is that they are sharing online inventory to meet the needs of the in-store shopper, whether they're on the, so a customer shopping at Dick's who might not be able to find a sneaker, a Nike sneaker in their size, they have the ability to get the customer that product through Nike's inventory. It's sort of an e-commerce version of wholesale, which is very close to a marketplace drop ship where the two are meeting each other. But I think it's very interesting. And I think it shows where you have two brands that are quite confident in the businesses that they're in, that there's a way for them to be one plus one makes three. And, I, and I'd love to dig more into that to know what it takes to actually combine those inventories, you know, just to get a bit geeky, you know, how do I create that? And I'm sure you're dealing with some legacy platforms as well. How are they creating that transparency so I can quickly satisfy that customer in a Dick store or a customer shopping Dick's online with product that's available on Nike's site? Yeah, uh, interesting. I mean, certainly being able to leverage all of the inventory and, you know, thinking about it from the perspective of the customer, how do both brands together jointly serve the customer better than they were being served before? So uh, that that's good stuff. Um, you know, you spend a lot of time in investing, uh, investing in businesses. What's your, your thesis for what you like to invest in? I'm not a classic investor. I don't I I don't represent anybody else's money. I just would prefer to lose my own than than take someone else's money and lose theirs. I, I did that once when I launched a business robot galaxy, which was a, a great quote unquote project. And I'll just step back for a second. We launched that business, my partner Oliver Mitchell, it was his concept, but we put it together. Started in 2007, raised seven million dollars of strategic money. Strategic money meaning we had the factory that was investor. We had a comic book story. We had the writer investor, the guy who was doing all of our fixtures invested. So everybody all the way around our ecosystem had skin in the game. Uh, we opened up two stores really fast. We raised some friends and family money and went right into a recession 2008, 2009, after opening up three locations, um, spending the money that we made and uh, the world literally stopped. So I, we, we, although we had a term sheet from Disney and I thought that that might be an exit, they pulled back and just said, we're, we're not going to move forward. So unfortunately there was no exit or there was an exit, but there was an exit for Oliver and me, which wasn't a financial exit. It was just, we fired ourselves because we could no longer afford us. And yeah, we lost, we lost money and I lost money from friends and family whose money I went out and asked for. And I don't want to be in that position again. So right now I, I put my own money to work when I find a platform out there that I see as being a platform that I would use today for addressing a specific area that I think needs to be addressed today to be a well-run company. 
So I might not find the perfect point of sale solution. And, you know, I work with the guys at Predict Spring, but you need to have a new point of sale solution to move your business forward if you're a store. Um, and I can say that about anything that I've invested in. It might not be the company that I invested in that will necessarily be successful in this space, but it's the area and the focus that they have that I think is important to moving the business forward. So I, I look at it that way. If I were a CEO today, what would I need from a technology perspective to move the company forward? And I'm also looking at who the, who's the CEO, what's their background, the problem that they're solving, obviously, hopefully the customers they have. And most importantly, what does integration look like? Because as you well know, you just don't have these big IT teams that can take on a lot. And generally the focus is let's preclude the company from getting hacked. I get an A, I go home, I start again the next day. Every project that a company takes on is just more work for the IT guy. Even though we hear it's a simple integration, this is no problem, we'll have you live in a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we you hear you, that a lot. You, you just took the words right out of my mouth. Being an investor myself and then also sitting on the side of being sold by a lot of these companies, you know, oftentimes they do, in fact, say, yeah, you know, it's one line of JavaScript and, um, you know, the implementation is easy and the implementation is never easy and it's always substantially longer. Uh, so uh, I, I get it. Um, and, you know, as far as, you know, the investing, uh, I think your thesis is is interesting. What would you use? Um, and for me, when I, you know, and I'm, I'm just a very small investor for me, it's so much about the founder. You know, do they have passion? Is this really a business or is it just a hobby? And, you know, those are, you know, a lot of the things that, you know, that I'm looking at. So um, speaking of things that you're in, investing in, you uh, you are involved with uh, a company in the circular economy. Um, I actually am involved with a few different ones as well. Uh, for the listener, what does the circular economy mean by definition? And how is the company that you're uh, involved with playing it? Yeah, so the circular economy is basically allows product to go from the store to the customer and either back to the store or back to another customer so the the product goes around and around it doesn't end up in landfill so that's how i view the circular economy probably a horrible definition but hopefully for the listener will give them some clarity on what we're looking at here the company that i'm working with is called reup and uh lauren vaughn who's the the ceo had a very interesting idea and i still love it today which was I coined it by now, sell later instead of BNPL, it's BNSL, which basically means imagine if a customer's on a website, take up something that's higher end, Montclair, and you buy a $3,800 Montclair coat. Now that person might be a real fashion forward person that is not going to want to wear that Montclair coat from one season to the next. Imagine if at checkout, it offers that customer $1,408 for that coat if returned to Montclair within 18 months. So, okay, you don't have to hit that button at that point. You may get an email reminding the customer during the first 18 months that that still exists, but it allows the customer like a get out of jail free card or that 30% of the original value at some time during that 18 months. The cool thing is, Montclair issues the credit 
So you stay a Montclair customer versus the customer selling it to the real real, which still I think supports the circular economy, but then the customer takes that $1,408 and they can buy anything with it. So I kind of like this model because it keeps the customer with the brand and then re-up actually takes the product and resells the product. So they handle that piece, they handle the operational. So it's almost circular economy as a service. It's interesting. It's it's almost like a car lease, right? You know, you know that you're going to uh, give it back at a moment in time. There's a residual value of the of the car. Uh, so you know, as soon as you were talking, I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. So I love it. So you get to see lots of different things, uh, folks. Uh, Ken's got a uh, a podcast. Uh, give it another plug here, Ken. What's the podcast name? Yes, the Retail Pilot Leaders and Legends. Uh, it's focused on CEOs, former and current, everything from um, uh, Mickey Drexler and Mindy Grossman of the world to some of the people that are leading the newer, younger, smaller business from Alex Faraday to Nate Checkets at Rowan to uh, beauty and wellness. So we're, we're covering a lot of good stuff. That's great. Uh, I will uh, make sure that I'm a listener and, and uh, our listeners should uh, listen to Ken. He's got some uh, great guests uh, there. So we're down to uh, the end of the show, Ken. I do this uh, two-minute drill, seven questions, one word answer. Are you ready? No. All right, well, I know you can't do it in one word. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. All right, here we go. Uh, a brand that you admire or that inspires you? On cloud running. A favorite app on your phone. Chat GPT. Yeah, that would have been a whole uh, podcast. Uh, the last website other than Amazon that you shopped from. Todd Snyder. Something that you're not good at, but wish that you were. Golf. Join the club. Charitable organization that you're passionate about. Delivering good. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Patience. And other than family, what's your most prized possession? Time. 76 guests, and I'm not sure anybody did it, all seven questions in one word. So kudos to you, Ken Pilot. It was good to see you, Ken. Uh, where can people reach out to you on social media should they want to? Yeah, LinkedIn is great. I have all my contact information there. That'll work well. Just generally one rule of thumb for me, I don't, I, I won't just accept a link or an invite. I want to know why. Uh, I'm happy to go back, trade an email or two, even hop on a call um, if there's an interest. But um, I try to keep my LinkedIn group fairly tight um, as to people I know. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, it's good. Nice to see you again. Um, I think we first met in my days at uh, Steve Madden. And, uh, you know, I've always enjoyed uh, staying in contact with you and, and seeing all the good stuff that you're involved with. So thanks for the time and thanks for sharing your story. It's been great. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for the opportunity. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Ken Pilot for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, Ken spoke about the CUO, his term for being able to see opportunities that you're passionate about and then go after them. On this show, we hear all about people who created their own opportunities, choosing not to sit back and wait for things to come to them, 
but to go after their passion. You can do that. It just needs some patience, some networking, and a good game plan. Number two, the wholesale channel can be so important for a retailer, but it comes with challenges like everything else. Ken talked about how brands have started as digitally native, then they created their own stores, and then ultimately they leveraged other retailers to help extend their brands. The wholesale channel brings a retailer exposure and brand awareness, and of course, sales, but it's not always easy to control your message. So be assured that you partner with someone who will allow you to help craft that customer message. Number three, whether you're a big or a small investor, you must have a thesis, that framework for what you choose to invest in. You can certainly vary your approach, but find something that you know, like retail tech, for example, and lay out how you decide what you'll invest in. For me, beyond the metrics and the concept, the founder is the key. Do you connect with them? Do they have the passion to stick this out? Because it's not easy. And also, can you determine whether this is really their business or simply their hobby? Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Yeah.